Community Cats podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats podcast. I am your host, Stacey LeBaron. I have been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. Today, we are speaking with Julie Jacobson. Julie is a crabby old maid born and raised in Minnesota and spent a career as an intelligence specialist in the U.S. Air Force, retiring as a lieutenant colonel. She has lived all over the world, and after settling in Tennessee, Julie got her first dog from an area shelter in 2002. Calamity Jane was a large mutt, and she changed Julie's life with her personality, pushing Julie to take in another rescue mutt, Emma Sue, and get involved in a local animal welfare group. Jackson County has no animal control, no shelter, and no vet, and the group has made a tremendous difference in the unwanted pet population with a focus on spay, neuter, and education. Since January 2010, Julie has been program manager for Spay Tennessee and taken on the challenge to define rural reality, which does not match national expert data. Her retired life is devoted to working with others to grow more effective spay-neuter programs across the state and encourage all shelters and rescues to alter before adoption. Julie, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Stacy. Thanks for having me. You have the privilege of being the first repeat guest uh, on the Community Cats podcast. This is episode number 92, and you were on episode number two. So you were just at the beginning, and I'm thrilled that you're willing to join us again today. Well, it's been exciting to see how this has taken off and all the interest in Community Cats. Since we have a normal set of questions of how you got started and all that stuff, I'm going to skip over some of those questions, and I'll tell folks that if they're interested in finding out how you got started, I'll refer them back to that second episode, and they can certainly uh, listen to that. But in today's episode, I think we're going to do a bit of an update of, of things. You run the program Spay Tennessee, and I can't believe you've been there for six years. That's just absolutely fantastic and, and wonderful. I was just wondering how the summer was for uh, cats down in the south. Um, actually, it was pretty good. We have we do have a whole lot of spay-neuter going on in the state. Um, I don't know if we talked about it last time, but there are over 100 uh, spay-neuter programs, either assistance programs or uh, fixed clinics or mobile clinics all across the state. Um, so if, if there's any funders listening, we are uniquely postured to uh, take a whole bunch of money <laughs> and make a big difference in one state. But we did have a new grant idea that one of our clinics did that turned out to be hugely successful. I call it the Kitty Litter Project, but they asked for money to do a bunch of litters of kittens. We fixed the mama and the kittens. And that was wildly successful, huge response from the public, and we did over 300 kittens. We always fixed the mama, too. The kittens were free to the client, but they didn't necessarily know that. Uh, we, uh, in the South, in the rural South anyway, we recommend not advertising free spay-neuter services, uh, largely because it, it helps fuel the perception that these animals have no value, which is something we already struggle against. And it's not really a sustainable model. Most of us can't do it free very often. So the client you know, just thought they got a great package deal with the mama and the kit and the whole litter for maybe $60. 
uh, which was the cost to fix the mama, the full price. But we also did assist if they if that sixty dollars was not affordable, we still assisted. But that one that was that was hugely successful, and that was funded by a grant from Petco just to do those litters of kittens. And it started in April, which was kitten season, so it was. We're hoping that that's going to make a huge difference in that area. But I would recommend that as a kind of a new way to target your grant funding or grant request. Was most of the outreach via word of mouth once things got going? Did a little social media in the beginning and kind of let it take its course from there? A couple of Facebook posts, you know, we made a cute little flyer and some uh, Facebook post or two. And yeah, boom, it took off. Yeah, we find that too. And we've uh, been able to do some blitz campaigns with um, PetSmart Charities money. And it's just, you know, they go for 30 days. And that week before the 30-day period, it starts, we post a few things on social media. And then it just goes boom, boom, boom from there. And uh, the word of mouth, it gets spent pretty quickly, the grant money. Well, it does. And then there's always those clients who wait till the last day of the month. <laughs> but I guess we have that. But yeah. Yeah. Or the ones that call the, you know, the first week afterwards or whatever. And they're like, what are you telling me? The special is over. And, you know, you feel so bad. And that's one of the challenges that we have. And it's something I don't think you and I've really ever talked about. It is, you know, when these projects end and then it's like, how do we go back to normal life after that? You know, we are sort of our community gets used to this opportunity. And so we have to sort of retrain them or just, you know, unfortunately, we're letting down potential customers that are calling us that, you know, can't afford the full price, whatever that might be, and, you know, really need some sort of a discount. And so I think it's important when we think about our grant opportunities almost to try and overlay as many of them as possible to at least keep some opportunities open at all times. That is really a key point. In fact, I'm surprised we haven't talked about that before, because since 2005, when I started getting grant funding for our county program, I have had grant funding nonstop for that long and usually spending two or three different grants at a time. So that does make it very nice where we can always help people. And sometimes they might complain that it's more expensive this time than it was before. But I just explained to them that, well, we had a different pot of money then or the money that we had to help, is that's gone away. Now we're spending different money. And it, our clients totally understand the fact that it's other people's money and other people's rules, you know, as far as how to spend it. So it is possible to run a stay neuter program, even in a small rural county, entirely on grants um, or, or mostly on grants. I know a lot of people don't like to hear that, but fundraising is very, very challenging for us here. It is good to have a couple different pots of grant money to spend. So I look at you as the grant writing expert or the, the grant expert for spay neuter opportunities for especially for the smaller groups. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the things that you cover in a, you sometimes have a, a short conference call or you have a recorded conference call that you share with folks that are just at the beginning stages of grant writing. Can you tell me a little bit about what is in that content? Yeah, it's about an hour. Basically, I try to take the fear out of grant writing because I try to tell people if you've ever filled out a government form, you can write a grant. There's no mythology. You do not need to have a professional grant writer. You just fill in the blanks. But part of that, too, you have to come in prepared. You have to know your mission. You have to know your community. And you have to 
you know, and math is very challenging for some people, but you really do have to have a budget, know what your costs are, what the surgery costs, what you can usually expect to get out of co-pays from the client, and then what the difference is. Uh, so there's, there is some math involved, but again, you got to know your story. If you can tell your story, you can get grant funding. And the other thing I would say is that a lot of people are just afraid to just put themselves out there. And I think that there are a couple of grant opportunities that you may know about that are pretty easy. What would you say are the sort of easiest ones that you have in your basket of spay-neuter grants? Greg Biffle is actually a pretty easy one. You do have to be a no-kill. If you have a sheltering and stuff, you have to be no-kill. And the Petco Foundation is back online and as far as funding. You apply by organization type. Either you're, If your primary mission is spay-neuter, there's a different application and cycle than if your primary mission is rescue and adoption. But you can, even if your primary mission is rescue and adoption, you can apply for spay-neuter money, including TNR funding. And yeah, PetSmart has just reopened. Should we get into that? Yeah, sure. Go for it. PetSmart is, they've been kind of on hold as going through a corporate restructure and you know, new strategic focus, which they will remain committed to spay-neuter, uh, from what I understand. But their application cycle is open. Uh, it's a much simpler application than it's been in the past, and there's two different grants you can apply for. One is for owned pets. You're subsidizing the owned pets. And the second one is non-owned TNR. Uh, which I think is an interesting distinction because a lot of times when we do TNR in the rural south, these aren't actually owned cats. They're on somebody's property in their barn, whatever. They actually have a caretaker. But PetSmart is going to be making the distinction, I believe, in the non-owned TNR uh, that these are actually out in the community behind the mall or something like that. Places that have malls anyway might know more about that. Mm -hmm. We definitely would encourage folks to check out the PetSmart Charities link and see what the application looks like. I would say the old style application I probably had memorized, and Julie certainly did too. We mentored quite a few groups on helping them go through that application. So if the application seems to be uh, much more streamlined, that that's fantastic. Yeah, it is much simpler. So yeah, we'll see what happens. And now let's take a moment to listen to a few words from our sponsors. Accidental Exiles by Bruce Perry. Jesse McAllister, a young Texan and a rock war vet, escapes to Europe where he seeks a new direction and to heal his desert wounds. Wandering the streets of Ascona, Switzerland, he meets and falls in love with a beautiful Italian waitress named Sonia Altarelli. Since the horrors of combat he encountered with a boyhood friend, Jesse will have nothing more to do with war. This story is his farewell to arms. Check out Accidental Exiles on Amazon.com today. Are you starting to think about that special holiday gift? Why not give the gift of a Community Cats podcast branded t-shirt, coffee mug, bag, or other item? This is the perfect way to spread the word about helping Community Cats. The proceeds from the sales will go to support the Community Cats podcast and the Community Cats grants program, which helps small groups grow their fundraising programs to be able to fund more spay-neuter programs for free-roaming cats. Go to www communitycatspodcast.com and click on our shop button in the menu bar today to get that perfect community cat gift right now. Thank you everybody for supporting the show. 
if there is somebody out there that's interested in taking a, a first step with an application, you would recommend that they go to the Biffle Foundation and just sort of take a stab at it? Or would you recommend like they have somebody else proofread it afterwards? Or are there things that they should do to prepare before actually doing an application, like making sure that they have their financials sort of in order, a mission statement? maybe a board listing? And what about maybe GuideStar? Should an organization be listed on GuideStar? Um, absolutely, because the foundations will look for you there. And that is an easy way to just direct people to find you and answer some of their questions too. But the first thing I'd like people to do is, is try to write one or two paragraphs about your organization. What is it you do and what's your focus area and, what's your, and what is your mission statement, which really should be short and sweet. Um, I heard once somebody say, if you can't tweet it out, it's too long. And because some people like to get into a history lesson, and that's really not a mission statement. Um, so anybody who wants to try to write up a couple paragraphs to start to learn to tell their story, yeah, send it to me, spazilla at yahoo.com, and I'll, I'll give you some honest feedback on that because that once you know how to tell your story yeah, then you have your um your financials your 990 or your 990 and a lot of us are small and you just have the postcard that has no numbers in it for anybody to be interested in so you really do also have to have a profit and loss statement you have to have some kind of piece of paper that shows your actual expenditures uh, from the previous year uh, your income and, and expenses uh, yeah and your list of board members and then your next year's budget. That, oh, that's another kind of confusing thing for folks. You know, your profit and loss, you have two sets of numbers. You have your what you actually spent last year and then your projected spending for this year. And it is just a projection. There is no penalty uh, for, for not sticking to the penny to your projected budget. No funder is going to knock you down for that. Uh, just don't be afraid, but you got to have some kind of a stab at what you might want to do. Um, and then and for, even when you're asking for the money, they'd like to see clearly exactly how it is it you're going to spend that. Now, that you do have to pay strict attention to. Don't box yourself in too much, but just make sure that you spend it honestly exactly how you told them you were going to. And another good tip for grants, whoever you're applying to, I would always make sure that you say, if not fully funded, uh, we can spend lesser amounts to fix fewer animals with your funds. Because uh, a lot of times the funders get frustrated. They, they really like your project, but they just can't fully fund you. So if, if they can't fully fund you, does that mean the project's going to fail? Or how does that happen? And it's perfectly fine to tell them as well that you are seeking alternate sources of funding, including which foundations you have applied for or even received. And sometimes that is impressive. It's not, it's, they don't look down on that if you've already been funded by other foundations. Because in fact, some way I think it helps. Because uh, if that foundation trusts you, I guess we can too. So be honest with the other uh, sources of funding. And that's what I always say in a, you know, grants writing and grants for our county program. If our, our local fundraising efforts yield modest at best results and uh, we can spend lesser funds to fix fewer pets and we'll continue to seek alternate sources of funding, including from other foundations. You were talking about managing multiple grants. So... How many grants over the course of the year do you have to manage? Typically four, because we do have, um, I think a lot of states have this, we do have a license plate uh, grant program or spay-neuter in Tennessee, so we typically get that one. We have a community foundation of Middle Tennessee that has a, a nice animal welfare fund 
So we typically get that. In fact, check in your local area, wherever you live. Just look for a community foundation because most places seem to have one, which is kind of a people can create funds and it's a way to kind of manage a lot of local giving. They may or may not have an animal welfare fund, but maybe you can talk to somebody about starting one. But ours is really quite generous. And I sometimes get Petco or PetSmart money, but that's that's kind of... Yeah, we used to love Bob Barker, but he's gone out of the business. Mm. And how do you manage it through Excel spreadsheets or Google Docs? Do you for the tracking purposes? Um, yeah, Excel mostly, and just keep track of how much did I spend each client and the the number of animals and how much uh, we spent. Make sure you send in the final report. Uh, more and more, of the foundations um, have an actual format for the final report. A lot of them didn't used to do that, but they do have a specific format and a deadline for the final report to tell them exactly how the funds were spent. And it's very important to pay attention to that because, again, they're not going to fund you typically a, a second time if you haven't filled in that final report. Because if you're not paying attention to that kind of detail, why should they fund you again? And one thing that's, that's kind of bitten a couple of people is they go to do the final report and then find out that they, were, they need to include pictures of some of the animals that <laughs> So, yikes. So be sure to capture some photos and stuff and be ready to tell stories because a lot more of the foundations are doing that. And, and then the Bissell Pet Foundation, that's the vacuum cleaner folks. They are actually also very, very friendly to small groups and have an application cycle usually twice a year. And they do fund TNR. If you do have access to that final report document when you receive the grant, it's really great to have because then you can set up your tracking system to be able to capture what information you need for that final report. I can't tell you how many times I've run around the room like crazy, emailing people or whatever, you know, for a final report needing X, Y, and Z that we really weren't prepared to gather that information. We had to go backtracking through the paperwork to be able to get some necessary piece of data or whatever. So it is good. I mean, in some cases, you know, they want a video or something like that. So it's definitely really good to kind of always read the fine print when the check comes in. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And pay attention to that contract, you know, because they're watching you to make sure you're paying attention. Well, it's even like same thing with the application. You want to answer that completely and professionally because, again, they're going to trust you with money. You're In that application process, you're proving to them you're going to be good stewards of their funds. Onyx and Breezy is another foundation that's very friendly to small groups. You said you have 100 spay-neuter programs all across the state in Tennessee. Are some of those high-volume clinics and some of them are smaller programs? How do you define those? We have about five mobile clinics in the state right now. And some of them aren't really very mobile. <laughs> they kind of sleep in their one area. But again, it's like Nashville and uh, Knoxville and Memphis, you know, high need areas. So they pretty much stay in those areas. Uh, we have 22 or 23 clinics and three more are going to be opening in the next year. And probably half of those, 10 or 11 of them do over 5,000 surgeries a year, just over 4,000. And then there's, you know, about 75 or 80 spay-neuter assistance programs, you know, like my county program. And now that's where you really get into a wide variance as far as how effective they are, how big they are, and, and what they do. 
and a lot of that depends, of course, on their funding. But that's what I try. I work with all of them and, and helping them with grant writing and get just getting more money to be able to do more spay neuter because that's the whole thing. More spay neuter, please. <laughs> Definitely. But it sounds like there's some tremendous spay neuter growth happening in Tennessee, which ultimately will result in the reduction of cat and dog overpopulation in the state, which is good news for everybody. Well, it is, and because that's one of my little soapboxes. There, there seems to be a lot of attention on transport out of the state, and that is a good thing, and I myself have transported dogs and puppies out of the state. However, it's become kind of its own cottage industry, and just last month there were two cases of pregnant dogs being pulled from shelters. I offered to pay 100% to spay the moms, and the rescue groups wouldn't do it because they were going to ship the puppies to New England where they're needed. Mm. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. It kind of it kind of makes me crazy. And then some of these people doing the transports, they're really kind of fly-by-night, and there are some very loose requirements with the U.S. Department of Agriculture and things that you're supposed to be doing, but... A lot of these folks are really doing it pretty much fly by night. It's it's be kind of scary. There was a crash here that happened last month. A one a transport vehicle heading up to New England and they crashed just on the interstate near here. They had no manifest. They weren't even sure how many dogs they had on board. Oh, oh terrible! Certificates for you know for the numbers that they did recover, and and a lot of them weren't even wearing any kind of identification or you know, collars or names, you didn't know how to match up which what dog was what. It was kind of a nightmare and an eye-opener as far as how really transporting can be a good thing. Please make sure you know your partners, and I'd be asking some questions about are they, are they licensed and registered and, you know, who's doing the driving, and are these people rested? What, what kind of trip do they go on? Do they even have time to sleep, and should they be driving? Part of that story, too, is that you know, there's some cachet, I think, in trying to help the southern dogs and the poor south, you know, because we're just too stupid to help ourselves. We're just a bunch of dumb hillbillies, and that's that's simply not true. We do have the resources in this state to do a lot of spay-neuter and, and solve our problem. Uh, I think we're really uniquely postured to have a big impact. Again, you know, if any funders listening, <laughs> give us a <laughs> Because I, I can I can show you nine clinics that could spend a hundred thousand in a year, and nine clinics who could spend fifty, and and about twenty other programs that could really run with a, a big chunk of money that would make a huge difference here. Well, wow, that's very empowering, and I too am a full believer in creating spay neuter strength you know, all across the country, and creating a sustainable model so that we're all in a place where we're not overburdening our shelters with cat overpopulation, basically. Um, and we do it through spay-neuter. We, we aren't doing it through adoption. We aren't doing it through transport. Primarily, we are primarily doing it through spay-neuter. Right. Well, because in of our 95 counties, you know, less than half of them have animal control. And even a lot of them that have animal control, they just do nothing about cats. There's no uh, shelter program for cats yeah. at all. So we've got a lot of good cat programs going and we need them. So Julie, if folks are interested in finding out more about your, uh, your grant um, education program that you have, uh, how could they find you? Spayzilla at yahoo.com. Spay as in spay neuter, zilla as in bridezilla. <laughs> I am spayzilla at yahoo.com. Julie, is there anything else you'd like to uh, share with our listeners today? If anybody knows a, a spay-neuter vet who wants to move to Tennessee, give me a shout. <laughs> We've got lots of openings. <laughs>
that's the other side of the coin is veterinarian recruitment is a, uh, it's a tough topic and it's a hot topic. That's for sure. I, I know many clinics that are struggling to get some veterinarians. It's just, we need more high volume spay neuter vets, you know, even with all the work of Humane Alliance, we just still have such a great need for more veterinarians. Yes. And as, as, as clinics open and expand, there's a couple clinics that are just looking to hire a second vet and they, they can do more if they just had, the, had a second vet. Hopefully there'll be a veterinarian listening to the show that might want to move down to Tennessee and maybe you'll have your way. Oh, I sure hope so. <laughs> the state is 10 hours across. We tell me where you want to be. I can probably hook you up. <laughs> Well, Julie, I want to thank you so much for being my first time repeat guest on the Community Cats podcast. So thank you so much for being a guest on the show, and I'm sure we'll have you on again in the future. Hey, thanks, Stacey. It's been great fun. Thank you for listening to the Community Cats podcast. I would really appreciate it if you would go to iTunes and leave a review of the show. It will help spread the word to help more community cats. 